listening to the podcast edition of One Love, One Planet. Um, Okay, coming up today, I'm going to be joined shortly by journalist Elizabeth Meisen. But first, let's listen to a message from Iman Danish Khan from Pakistan. My country, Pakistan, is ranked number eight as per the Climate Change Risk Index. And the thing is, Pakistan's greenhouse gas emissions are less than 1%. Yet, we are facing all of these floods and problems. And did you know, Pakistan is home to the most glaciers outside of the poles. Since Pakistan is an agricultural country, most of its economy comes from crops. But due to the recent floods, 90% of our crops have been destroyed, which will also hurt our textile industry, another big source of income. And did you know more than 30 million people have been affected and over 12,000 people have died? We really need support from countries responsible for such disasters from the global north. Thank you. Before we start talking about uh, the main subject at hand, could you just tell our listeners just a little bit about you? Absolutely, yes. Um, I'm a media journalist. I have just started uh, recently working for the Bristol Cable, which is a local community-owned newspaper in Bristol. Um, And before that, I have been uh, a number of things, but uh, most recently uh, focusing mainly on journalism and journalism about journalism. Uh, which is how I came to write the article that we're going to talk about today. It is amazing the interest that I was a big fan of the media show years back on, mm. on Channel 4, which is you, you'd think, oh, this is just navel gazing, but actually it's <laughs> so important as we're just about to see. Um, Absolutely, and I, I think that that's something that is really important is that because of the nature of these sorts of things, you don't get a lot of journalism about journalism because journalists tend to be interested in a specialist subject, and there aren't as many journalists, you know, there are a lot of journalists that are interested in climate change or the environment, for example. There aren't as many journalists who are wanting to look at themselves or their own industry so I think that's really important Um, and when it comes to the climate it's really really important um right okay let's start you wrote an article very recently on byline times could you just tell us about tell us simply what it was about certainly yes so I was really I began to get really interested in the way that climate change was being represented in the media um and essentially that there was, I would say shortly before the pandemic, there was a general sort of move culturally towards the idea that climate change, man-made climate change is real and it's happening. And, you know, there was this feeling that, okay, so we can all agree now. Uh, The BBC in 2018 stopped platforming climate deniers, which actually is a scarily recent year. But, you know, at least they did it. Um, And so I think, you know, especially living in a a bit of a liberal bubble like Bristol, there's this general feeling that, okay, yeah, we all agree climate change is happening. And, you know, there's a few radical people who maybe don't believe it or whatever. Um, And then as I started to write more and more about the media... Um, And I went freelance as a journalist for a while. Um, I began to realise that there are still really strong pockets of the British media um, industry that are continually platforming 
climate denial. Sometimes it's outright climate denial, sometimes it is uh, climate dismissal and delayism, um, which is something that has been talked a lot about recently, that, you know, there are quite a few people who say, oh, yes, you know, we believe in climate change, that it's happening, um, as though it's a belief and not a scientific fact. Um, but, you know, we just can't do this, we just can't do that, we must save the economy, we must do, you know, X, Y, Z, which, for whatever reason, ends up meaning that we just can't take the... Uh, necessary, you know, precautions. Yes, and I loved the way that you you structured this article, and I quite liked actually to jump back to the first section, which is climate dismissal. That's an interesting phrase. Could you just tell it say again a bit what what you mean by that? Certainly. So um, a lot of these things are very subtle, but you can see it recently in the heatwave coverage in a really clear way that um, we know that. Uh, climate change makes, you know, scientists have been telling us for a very long time, but they've been saying it a lot recently, that climate change will make a heat wave or the two heat waves, actually, that we've had in the last month or so, um, say, let's say, for example, 100 times more likely. So we know that whether or not we can directly link climate change to one individual event, we know that it makes those kinds of once in a lifetime events far more likely. So we can say without doubt that the heat waves we just experienced are linked to climate change. Now, what a lot of papers will do is they will report on the heat wave, but they'll report on, you know, ice cream sales going up, mm. or they will report on yeah. one individual fire that happened because of the heat wave, they, and they will not mention climate change. So we are kind of dismissing climate change and taking climate change out of the equation. Mm. Um, and the frequency with which this happens is really, you know, really quite, I would say, sinister, that, you know, there are editors who will not uh, for whatever reason, acknowledge that these things are happening because of climate change. And I think that it's, you know, not everything is down to what the media does. Of course, everybody's got their own reasons for uh, thinking what they think and saying what they say. But I think it's a huge problem in the UK um, for people being willing to act because they are not seeing the level of media coverage and the clarity of media coverage that they need to see. Absolutely. Now, before we go to all the broad reasons why it's happening, can we move on to the climate Delayism. Yes, delayism. So delayism would be, uh, for example, saying, you know, we really need to do something about climate change. Now, we see this in The Guardian, for example. The Guardian is brilliant um, at a lot of its climate reporting. Um, It has some dedicated reporters and it's really, really focusing a lot of what it does on reporting every single time a new scientist report comes out there's a lot that i can say that's positive about the guardian however they for a long time have still been running um adverts for airline companies for example they have been saying um you know that they can't give up their advertising revenue for bmw or mercedes or whoever it is um and also you know as recently as a few years ago they were running you know uh, articles about um you know go on this holiday and go on that holiday and see this thing before it's underwater and that sort of thing so there's this kind of idea that we're recognizing that climate change is happening and we'll say it in this part of our paper but in the travel supplement we'll still be suggesting that you go on an airline because you know what can we do we you know there's this kind of delay um of urgency Yes. And actually, I see that reflected in people I know. You you know, there are most people I know are really concerned about things, but still living a normal life. Yes. There are other people I know who are really concerned about things. And it is all they think about from the minute they get up to the minute they go to bed. Yeah. And I still don't quite understand why people fall into those two groups. I, um, yeah, I have a bit more to say about that, but perhaps, perhaps no, I can say about that later. Please do. Okay. <laughs> and the third 
the third section? The third section is outright climate denial. So um, one of the worst offenders for this is the Times, in my opinion. So Melanie Phillips, um, who is a uh, long-time Times columnist, she has been very consistent with her view that climate change is not real and that it's not happening and that, you know, we don't need to pay any attention to it. She said it over and over again in in her column. And most recently, she said it in July. I believe it was July 18th. It was an article that she wrote about Sri Lanka and Sri Lanka's collapse and the fact that it was linked to, um, you know, energy policies of the government. She has outright said that she doesn't believe it's happening and the Times editors have allowed her to say that. So they can they have, you know, some plausible deniability in their minds, I'm sure, but they should not be publishing anti-scientific material uh, and misinformation in a in a paper like the Times. You know, it's a huge paper in the UK um, and they are allowing that to happen. And I think it's um, I think it's criminal. <laughs> can I just play? I just want to play um, a voice message that I had, because it's very relevant to what you've just said. So I think even if we go back to a more general conversation, I think it would be quite good to hear it now. This is from Elena Wood, who um, comes from Appalachia. And she is a, um, well, she's the garbage, she's also known as the garbage queen. Um, She's a sustainability scientist and climate communicator. Most of the um, the stuff she does is on TikTok and she has a massive following. I mean, hundreds of thousands of followers. Her posts reach million. I mean, it was over nine million views the last time I checked. Um, and she um, wrote a piece on Twitter recently about how TikTok is distorting climate information and amplifying misinformation and suppressing um the, the credible stuff. So I just, I'd really like you to hear this to see what you think about what she's saying. My name is Elena Wood. I'm a sustainability scientist and climate communicator based in the United States. And I use the app TikTok to discuss climate change under the username, The Garbage Queen. It's become abundantly clear to me that TikTok is censoring climate related content and that's starting to become a problem. Climate scientists and activists like myself routinely have their content banned due to it violating TikTok's community guidelines even though it actually doesn't. And blatant climate misinformation, whether it be climate denial or climate doom, rarely gets taken down. There are two main reasons why this seems to be happening, and TikTok has yet to address either of them. One way climate content gets taken down is by users mass reporting videos, comments, and accounts. If something on the app is reported enough times, it will get taken down. It doesn't matter if it violates community guidelines or not. That's just the way the reporting system works because it's run by an AI. So a real person rarely reviews violations. Sometimes users are able to get their content back up, but even then their accounts remain in trouble. My account, for example, is on the verge of being permanently banned, even though I've gotten every video and comment reported back up. The other reason why climate content gets taken down on TikTok is because TikTok actively suppresses content it deems is too political. And unfortunately, climate falls into that category. This is all quite troublesome because TikTok is one of the largest social media platforms and most young people nowadays look to social media for news. When experts have their content taken down or their views suppressed, it actively impacts what news about climate change the public sees. And in the case of TikTok, That means climate denial and climate doom is what the public sees. Once that misinformation goes viral, it's quite difficult for experts to debunk it because the damage is already done. The algorithm won't push the debunks to them since they've interacted with misinformation. But I don't believe this is a lost cause. There are two ways TikTok has helped address other forms of misinformation, and I believe the same can work for climate. During the start of the pandemic, 
TikTok help get doctors and public health officials verified, or at least help them not get their content taken down. And I believe it's time for TikTok to do the same for climate scientists and activists. TikTok can also update their community guidelines to include climate misinformation as a violation like they do with COVID and election misinformation. I believe the public deserves to know the truth about climate science, policy, and solution. And social media platforms like TikTok need to be held responsible for the role they're playing in spreading climate misinformation. So, there you go. There's, I think there's a lot that's relevant to what you're saying. Absolutely, yeah. I thought that was really interesting. Um, and I think that you know part of the problem with many social media platforms is that they don't release the information on what they do with their algorithm. I think that there are people um, like that lady there that you know that can work it out if they're quite active on the platform and you can see how these things are happening. Um, but you know they they should be far more transparent about that because we can see the results of what's happening with misinformation. Mm. And I thought that was brilliant actually the the suggestion that you know we really need to add climate misinformation to a violation uh, policy list and we also need to make sure that climate scientists and activists specific activists who are you know reliable and who are working with climate scientists should be verified absolutely that verification mm. absolutely so Mel- melanie phillips wouldn't have it well you'd <laughs> hope not you'd hope not well yeah absolutely absolutely mm. uh, but elena thank you so much for for doing that and i would love to talk to you more about uh, your other work um, yes, I think that th- those things could make a huge difference. I mean, on Facebook, you get, uh, I notice that you, if you post stuff about climate, you do actually get a little warning message yes. saying to, to check things. Um, now, we haven't got too long. I, I, I was really interested in all the things that you said about why this kind of thing is happening. And it's journalists, it's this culture of, fear you talk about people concerned about obviously earning a living it's all that side of things this is why all this is partly why this is happening do you could you talk a bit more about this sure i mean i think that you know it can be seen seen in most industries that that um hierarchies have a soft power so it it it's not really necessary for an editor to say to his or her um, journalists, you know, you will not write this about climate change. Generally, if you go to work in a, in a paper, especially a, a national paper that's long running, you know, if you're, if you're any kind of good candidate, you'll know what that paper says, what its tone is, you know, what, what the kind of politics of the paper are. So you know what you're going to be writing about and you know how you're going to be writing about it. Um, and if you don't know, then you probably won't get the job. <laughs> so I think that it's really, you know, all of us probably can see that in workplaces that we've worked for that we don't really need to be told what to do and what to say because we already know um, instinctively um, what the editor is going to accept so some of the reporters that I spoke to you know I said do you you know are you on board with the idea that climate change is real and they said yes and I said are your editors on board with the idea that climate change is real and they said yes and I said well would you pitch and you know would you pitch a, an article about climate change to your editor and they said no probably not because you know the, the daily star is not going to start running a load of you know, climate change articles. Um, And if they did, they would do it in a sensational way because they see that as their route to selling papers and they see that as what their audience wants. Now, there's a lot to be uh, said about what an audience wants and what an audience is given and, you know, how those two things work together. There's a very big Venn diagram there. Um, But, you know, the industry works um, online, 
through clicks and so that's where the sensationalism comes from and that is based on the old model from newspapers that you know people would buy the newspaper with the most intriguing headline and that works in the same sort of way it's about sensationalism and now we call it clickbait but it still works in the same way for print newspapers I remember seeing um I don't know if he was an editor or journalist from CNN right um talking about Trump and he said we are really as guilty as the right-wing press in the States because, you know, we need to run. We need money to run. And he just attracts, you know, he is clickbait. He's, yes. he's probably the biggest clickbait you could have had once upon a time. Maybe not quite so much now, although actually he probably is. <laughs> um, and yes, he said, I, we hold our hands up. Sure. We, we contributed to turning him into this massive sort of personality cult on, yeah. online. Sure. And, uh, you know, and there's 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 a lot to be said about the different tone of, you know, newspapers. You can cover the same issue and do it in a completely different way mm. uh, and a completely different tone, even if you are operating from the same facts. And so I think that that's something that um, hopefully a lot more people will become interested in and a lot more guidance will be given to newspapers or, or will be kind of... Um, you know, will be drawn up by newspapers. We'll we'll see how that pans out over the next sort of few years. But yes, because you were saying, because I I do feel for journalists who who need to earn a living. And you were talking about, you know, one of the things you mentioned in the article was a, a, a sort of lack of diversity amongst journalists. And sure, that, absolutely, it's that whole business of opportunity. And then if you've got that job, you will want to hang on to it. Certainly, uh, and yeah. so you are going to censor yourself. Certainly, yeah, um, yeah. So. Um, and, and also, I remember you saying that um, we're talking about our news culture as entertainment in Britain. Yes. Um, and I'd, somebody was saying that I think they were in Europe somewhere, France, Spain, and talking to them about our uh, news coverage and how shocking they found it over there. Yeah. Because there's so... Uh, it, it, they invariably bring on somebody just to give an opinion. Sure. Um, and it's usually very binary as well. Yes, and sure. sensationalist. Yeah, and, and, and this can be seen as well, you know, in, in TV news. I think that... Um, Good Morning Britain has been quite an interesting um, case. They've had a lot of climate activists on mm. and they will quite often bring climate activists on specifically to berate them, essentially. Richard Madeley is one of the worst people for this. Yeah. You know, I saw something recently which I thought was quite funny that, you know, if you were on the Titanic and you shouted, iceberg, Richard Madeley would say, hmm, I see you're having a gin tonic there and you're benefiting from ice quite a lot yes. right now, actually. <laughs> I'm yes. not sure what you're talking about. Aren't you a hypocrite? And I think the hypocrite argument is a very interesting one. Um, and going back to what you were saying earlier about you know people who fall into these two camps of thinking about climate change every day and and thinking about it urgently and then just sort of saying well I'm worried about climate change but I don't really know what to do and I I'm don't really want to change my life you know I think that we need to get away from this hypocrite argument because we need to realize that the reason we need to do something about climate change and the reason we need to talk about it urgently in the media is because we don't really have a choice oh absolutely and, and I, I just want to say I wasn't for one minute suggesting that that 
big tranche of people are hypocrites. Sure, we sure. are all forced to live yes. a very hypocritical life, which exactly. is why I get so incandescent when people like Piers Morgan say, right. what are your shoes made of? What's your jump made of? Yes. How did you get here in a car? All that. It's just such nonsense. As you say, it's so important. Absolutely. Because we're forced to live in this particular system. Right. Um, yes. You know, yeah, the, the, no, you're quite right. The parent who has to drive their child mm. to nursery, their only other option is to coop up their child in their house. And that's not a way to live. So, you know, what we really need is better transport options and, you know, better industries. And we will not get those by acting simply individually. We will get those by engaging in collective action um, and by you know if we want to have a, a government that works we need to essentially use collective action to get the government to work well. Yes and on that note what we should be doing now given how uh, urgent things are is we really should be looking to change things that we we should be sitting down thinking, right what do we need to do back of an envelope this is what we need to do instead of which we're wasting so much time on things like brexit and arguing about whether there's a problem in the first place anyway yes um and we have one of our two candidates for head of the conservative party liz truss who who apparently um, has very close links to a lot of the groups that are really supporting and nurturing this whole sort of bed of denialism and delayism with Tufton Street uh, yeah. and the think tanks and the lobby groups. She has very close ties to a lot of those people. She's employed people from those groups. Um, she is funded by some of them. Mm-hmm. And so... If she gets into power, I can only assume that it's going to take even longer to try and sort of break through and get an honest approach to what we need to be doing. Um, Because you kind of get the feeling that if we could just break through and just concentrate on the simple fact of what we need to be doing, life would be so much easier all of a sudden. Yeah, it's really interesting. Mick Lynch of the the General Secretary of the RMT, who has been online a lot recently um, for, you know, uh, speaking out very well and eloquently on these things in the uh, during the strikes, said, I think he called her recently a right-wing extremist. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that given her stance on certain things like climate change, for example, um, and, you know, she said recently, uh, you know, I think she said very, very sort of casually, uh, when asked a question about nuclear war and, you know, having her finger on the nuclear button, she said, yeah, I think it's a prime minister's responsibility to be able to do that. Um, and I think, you know, anybody who engages with the nuclear war um, question in a casual way, mm. <laughs> um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't put them far from, from the extremist label, honestly. Mm. At the end of your article, you're talking about things we need to do. Um, you're talking about... We can demand several easy remedies to try and improve this problem. Um, so linking extreme weather to climate change, visualising the crisis, you say. Yes. What, can you tell, tell me what you mean by that? This is a really interesting one, and I think it's, I think it's something that can be very easily solved. Um, that we have a lot of fun in the sun imagery when we have heat waves. You know, there's uh, when we have a, an article about heat wave or about climate or whatever, quite a lot of the time what you'll see is pictures of people in bikinis on beaches or pe- pictures of people eating an ice cream or, you know, children playing in fountains and things like that. Um, now, while that's illustrative of the issue, you could argue, um, it's a very particular 
emotional image um, and it does not give us the emotional information that we need in order to be able to understand what the article is about and we you know there is some research I'm not going to quote the exact stats because I can't remember what it is but there is some research the vast majority of people especially now that we're consuming most of our news online only look at the picture and read the headline and so they're not reading the detail of these articles that's a a whole nother show (laughs) Uh, there's a lot to be said there um but I think it's really important to know that you've got that you know, first impression that you really need to make to deliver to people what you're talking about and what the most crucial part of this article is. Um, and when we're you know, watching kids playing and having a nice time in a fountain, that is not communicating that those children's future is really in danger because of what is happening currently and the fact that we are not acting urgently enough on it. Yeah, no, it's a very good point. And we also need total transparency. And I thought the BBC was supposed to be doing this in making it clear where their interviewees are from. But they are now, I know in 2018, they stopped giving a platform to climate deniers, but they are now giving a platform to those same people under the label of, you know, um, groups like Net Zero Watch yes, um, who are now delaying things because they're saying that it's going to be too expensive to go green and all this sort of stuff. Sure, yeah. And of course that's kicking the can down the road. Yes, Big delayers time. and 101. Yes, absolutely. So we need this whole thing of stay alert. I've, I've now u- adopted that phrase for all this kind of stuff. We need to be alert uh, to the people that we're, we're listening to. Is there anything else? That you that you think that you think we need to be thinking about. I, I guess I guess the the primary thing for me is just that there you know there is good reporting out there. There mm. absolutely is. Mm. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't know about any of these things, right? You know, I can't sit here and say, well, the media is doing a terrible job on climate change wholeheartedly because you know otherwise I wouldn't know about it. Mm. Um, and it's just about becoming really literate. As, as much as you can to what is yeah. happening, really looking at the way that climate is being reported in different newspapers, um, especially not taking what columnists say with a pinch of salt. Read climate reporters and environment reporters. Do not listen to columnists. You know, I've been a columnist and I was paid to give my opinion on things. I was not paid, you know, I'm not a scientist. And so if I'm giving my opinion on, you know, climate in, in some, you know, random place, I think that, you know, you really need to think about who who these people are and the other thing that I would say is about activism activists at the moment are are delivering the message that scientists are giving Mm -hmm. and so I think basically the way to approach columnists and activists are you know are they saying what scientists are saying if so you should be able to trust them and if they're not saying what scientists are saying then they're just giving you their random opinion (laughs) and it's just not worth you know the paper it's printed on very good advice and there are two other things that i kind of like to add to that which is uh, yeah because the media landscape has changed so much and i think a lot of people still like reading the legacy media you know the papers who've been around forever because they know where they are with them whereas with new titles like Byline Times, Medium, I I don't know. I don't know exactly what those um, groups sort of represent. And so I do, there's a slight uncertainty, um, you know, about things. So I understand why people might want to stick with where they feel sort of safer and 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 more sort of clear with what what they're about to see but but I would just say mix it up a bit yes and and as you say listen to activists I find Twitter really useful because a lot of it is first-hand, like these films I've been getting from uh, Iman in Pakistan. And also, you mentioned him in your article, Jonathan N. Fuller, 
on Facebook. He is he he trawls through so many of these titles every day and will post about look at this and this is good this is bad and it, 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 apart from what he says what you will get is a sort of digest which is really helpful because it means you haven't got to necessarily go to all these different places um so if you did want to start informing yourself that's quite a good way to do it absolutely um, yeah right elizabeth thank you so much thanks for having me um, tip once a week um, and it's courtesy of Chloe Naldrett who's been on the show and here is tip number two. Hello so here we have eco living tip week two. Um, these little tips are um, a weekly bubble of positivity and possibility to hopefully inspire you to do the little things that hopefully then leads to the bigger things. So week two is a waste reduction tip. Um, I hoard the little lidded pots that takeaway dips and sauces come in. Um, I then buy big jars of tomato puree from the um, grocery shop and I split it up into these perfect little size portion pots and put them in the freezer until I need them. I also use them to freeze um, pesto, as I never seem to get to the bottom of a jar of pesto before it starts going furry. And they're also really good for aquafaba, which is chickpea water, um, in perfect egg replacer quantities. So this, I find, um, is a really good way of reducing my waste. Um, but also in the case of tomato puree, I can buy it in an easily recyclable or reusable glass jar instead of a foil tube with a plastic lid. Although I do rinse the foil tubes out and put them with my cans for recycling. So that's this week's tip. I offer it not because I'm perfect, but because doing these small things makes me feel better. I know what you mean. They do make you feel better. And I those those little things really irritate me so if you can get something good out of them which clearly Chloe you are that is a good thing thank you very much and there will be another tip from Chloe next week and next week I will be talking to Becca Blees who is she says freshwater and fungi enthusiastic enthusiastic freshwater and fungi enthusiast um, and she's a member of the Conum bathing campaign for cleaner water of course you know yeah that's been so much in the news this week um, so I'm going to be talking to her about that next week um, as well as as I say another eco tip and another press pause I think I am going to try and um, make sure that we do that every week so thank you so much for your company and um, uh, look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you.